This is dedicated, a show where people share about what they are dedicated to. It could be a career or a hobby. They will tell you why they are so into it, or how they become so good at it. I'm your host Lulu, and making these conversations happen is what I am dedicated to. You can also tell me what you are dedicated to. For any artist who desires a wider audience, he needs at least two arrows in his quiver: a creative one and a business one. Pagnum always knew he was born for some creative career. He has won many photography competitions ever since his high school teacher lended him a professional camera. He also sees how photography can be a form of therapy, while mentoring chronic disease patients at the National University Hospital in Singapore. After college, Pagnum went to Stanford GSB, one of the most prestigious MBA programs in the world, to pick up more business chops, hoping that will get him where he wants to go. And now he's a product manager at Activation Blizzard, helping to push the ingenuity of game developers to a larger gaming audience. Besides his personal passions, you also hear about how Pagnum, as a Singaporean, navigated China and America, where he got his bachelor's and master's degrees. My name is Pagnan, and I'm from Singapore. I was born and raised in Singapore.、Uh, did my undergrad in China, and then afterwards、uh, came to the U.S. for my MBA. And right now, I'm working in Activision Blizzard. Hmm. So before college, you've been living in Singapore, right? Yes, that is correct. So how would you describe your hometown? I think Singapore is a place that is beautifully diverse in many ways, right? And you see that permeate to the people that you see on the streets, to the foods that you eat, to the languages that you speak.、Mm-hmm. And so, I think to put it shortly, I think it's just so wonderful to see it being so diverse and to be so accepting of so many different cultures. And I think as you start to Explore more of the world that we live in. You realize that such acceptance may not be as commonplace as we think, right?、Mm-hmm. You get to different countries, and then you realize that, you know,、uh, xenophobia, for example, or other sentiments may be more prevalent than the acceptance that we see in Singapore. So, I think it's quite special. One thing to add here is that I think one thing we take for granted living in Singapore is just. The amount of safety that we have, and it's something that has grown on me, and something that I've started to appreciate more now that I'm overseas.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when did you have this idea of I'm gonna like study abroad and like learning in like a different country? 
Yeah, uh, so this is actually an interesting topic. I remember when I was in high school, mm -hmm. um, in Singapore, we could junior college. There were friends around me who were considering to go abroad to study. So like they were looking at places like, you know, top universities in the UK and, and US. And I was also looking at that point in time. There was certainly interest, but you know, there, there's certainly very, very high upfront cost, as, as we would know, mm -hmm. to go to these places to, to, to study. So I think that was when I started thinking about studying overseas. And then for those who know Singapore, you have to serve your two-year military service mm -hmm. before you go to college, right? So after my high school, during my military service is when like, we started applying and we started thinking of where exactly to go. And that was when I made two important choices. The first choice was to first decide to not want to stay in Singapore for college. And mm -hmm. that is because a lot of my friends were going to the local universities. And while they were very good, they had high rankings. I kind of want to break out of that comfort zone, right? Because you could imagine that, you know, you go to, you know, junior high school, high school with the same group of people, right? Mm -hmm. And now that you finish your military service, you're going to college with the same group of people, right? So mm -hmm. um, that same pool of people, while maybe great and familiar, is something that I did not necessarily see myself being with all the time, right? And so I wanted to break mm -hmm. out of that comfort zone. And then as I was thinking between like the US and the UK, clearly number one cost was something that was on my mind. Mm -hmm. Another one was just what would give me the biggest challenge? I think at that age, when you're so young, you're always trying to figure out what's the biggest delta you can give yourself mm -hmm. and really break out of that mold. And so that was when I started thinking about studying in China. But I also realized that my grabs of the Chinese language at that point in time was very poor, <laughs> right? And, and so in the army, I also had to spend a lot of my time, you know, um, catching up on my Chinese language because there are a few tests that you have to do before you can apply for Chinese universities. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that I went through that process and afterwards decided to go to study in Beijing in, in China. And to date, I think that choice Mm -hmm. is the best decision I've made in my life. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I assume that wasn't like a very easy transition for you due to the language and also Beijing is such a big city. And I believe like a lot of classmates uh, of you, they're all like come from different cities rather than like when you're in Singapore, you basically know every people because it's like a small pool. Yeah, I think in the first two years, it would most certainly be just a language barrier, right? Like mm -hmm. all of us are quite academically inclined with my classmates because they were all like scholars of their respective mm -hmm. provinces. They were much smarter, but I think we were all pretty good at doing exams and studying and things like that. But just for the undergraduate course of four years to be fully in Chinese, Mm -hmm. had its challenges right and so I think for the two years a lot of it was trying to adjust to studying and reading everything almost in Chinese and having to write very quickly I remember in the first exam I had um, in college I would you know hand up a paper that because we use a3 paper for, mm -hmm. to write our, our answers right so um, it's a huge like you know a3 size and <laughs> when 
I handed it up. I wrote like two pages maybe of the A3 um, for this particular exam in my first year. Mm-hmm. And my classmates were, ha- were hand up like double-sided mm-hmm. five, pa- five pieces of paper. <laughs> and I think just, you know, that familiarity with the language and expressing yourself was a huge thing to, to overcome. And, and with this challenge, there were sacrifices that I've had to make. And one of those sacrifices was to not stay so close with the Singaporean community. Mm-hmm. I know when you go overseas, you always like to stick with the people who are like you, speak like you, mm-hmm. come from you know wh- where, where you were born. But when I was in China, I made a very intentional choice to mainly just stay with my Chinese friends and Chinese counterparts because I find that that really helped immerse me in that environment and mm-hmm. to really push myself to think in Chinese, write in Chinese, talk in Chinese, and understand the nuances of that culture. Mm-hmm. And I think that really helped me to adjust after like the first and second year. So I, I would say that kind of language and cultural barrier was the big thing to break through. Mm-hmm. And was the teaching style very different from what you experienced in Singapore? Well, I think it had a similarities, but in ways that were a bit more extreme, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, I'm sure you know, in, in China, there's still the very kind of road way of, of learning. Sometimes you have to memorize it. And I actually think that is good logic to that. Like, for example, my professors would say, if you don't memorize it, you won't internalize it over time. And somehow over time, as I grew older, I, I begin to understand this logic whereby if you don't memorize it because of so many distractions in life, uh-huh. you just forget that knowledge, right? And so while some of it may be more rude, um, it's, and like one example I'll give of, of that is, you know, we had exams where you have to like memorize a 5,000 mm-hmm. word classical text mm-hmm. and, write it, and write it out word for word with mm-hmm. the punctuations in the correct place. Mm-hmm. Right. So while that may seem like an extreme form, I actually felt like while that was different from Singapore's teaching style, that was actually very helpful later on as it helped you internalize some of the stuff that were in there. Yeah, I feel it's like putting something like on the shelf of your memory. And at some point you're gonna use that. Or at least having that concept kind of like prepare you for something in the future. Yeah, because I find that if you were to just prepare for exams itself, I'm sure we mm-hmm. all understand this, right? Mm-hmm. Once you finish the exams, you forget about the, the content. Mm-hmm. But actually forcing myself to memorize it for the exam has helped me retain some of that even till now. So mm-hmm. like, while I can't say like, hey, I can like rewrite that 5,000 word classical text, mm-hmm. I can say like, I remember certain verses in there that were very impactful as maybe like they were hard to memorize mm-hmm. or they just had a lot of meaning to them. So you say you can still remember some of that until now. So if I let you to just name one thing you still remember, what's the thing that pop into your head? Yeah, uh, so all my friends will know uh, <laughs> from my time at China, I've grown to like Dao De Jing. Oh. So like Dao Ke Dao Fei Chang Dao, basically it's, it's just um, classical ancient text by uh, Lao Tzu, mm-hmm. written many centuries ago for, for those who don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think has been translated to many languages around the, the, the world today. I see. 
Yeah. So you will major in international political economy, right? And yeah. I know you were involved in a lot of a lot of research and international forums, and you also had a trip to Changsha, right? Yeah. So yeah, what was that about? Would you like me to start with the one at Changsha first? Um, yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, so I think this was sometime in March or April of 2019. And that was when um, I was invited to Changsha mm -hmm. as well as Nanjing um, as part of um, UNESCO's program where mm -hmm. I was a youth ambassador for creativity and heritage. Mm -hmm. The gist of, of this is right now as we stand, people below 25 years old actually represent over 40% of the world's population. Mm -hmm. Let me just repeat that again. People below 25 years old represent over 42% of the global population. So almost like almost half, right? So a lot of young people in, in the world right now. Mm -hmm. So I think when we think about creative arts and the, pres and the preservation of, of heritage, mm -hmm. at least from UNESCO's point of view, there was a strong need to engage the youth of today and tomorrow. So the work that we did in Changsha was to come out with an action-oriented outcome document. So it was this like huge, you know, research plus findings document that a lot of different ambassadors came together to align on mm -hmm. but we highlighted 10 concrete recommendations so 10 concrete recommendations that we made to unesco and just the different un countries in three different areas and the three different areas if i can recall were number one creativity and, and innovation mm -hmm. number two youth space for mutual learning and exchanging. Mm -hmm. So like symposiums, you know, events, things like that. And number three is just more capacity building in this field. And so basically to sum it up is we just want to hope, we, we hope to engage the youth in different countries as much as possible. And that work that we did in Changsha laid the foundation for UNESCO's efforts around youth. Yeah, so that was what I did um, when I was at Changsha. And then when I was, and you mentioned like the part of our research, when I was at Peking, then mm -hmm. I also did research on the Belt and Road Initiative, was, which was um, pretty a pretty hot topic in the past few years. Yeah. And what are some other researches you were also like, interested in? Yeah, so I think a lot of it was between the intersection of the Belt and Road Initiative because mm -hmm. that spanned many regions and how that intersected with Africa, right? So mm. we know from, from an economic point of view, China has a history of you know, very fast and successful economic growth, right? And this presents an, an attractive template for African countries to replicate, right? Because mm -hmm. if you look at China, it has invested significantly in big, big infrastructure, industrial and connectivity projects. And all of these are kind of critical requirements for governments mm -hmm. in across Africa as well. So I think what I've done is to really study that, that partnership because as you would know, over the last two decades, I think China has established a pretty significant economic presence mm -hmm. in most African countries. And there are always kind of two sides to that argument 
in that, you know, is this presence of, you know, China's capital investment good for that continent? Mm-hmm. Or is it in some ways hurting the social fabric and political stability that we have in that region? So I think for me, it was interesting to take a look at that and to look at this huge opportunity and see the different sides that we have with China getting more involved in that region. Mm. Yeah, so after studying like um, politics and the history of other countries, do you have a new understanding of Singapore, like your hometown? Yeah, definitely. So I think it's interesting because like I mentioned, like there were many spectrums that I began to appreciate more, things like political stability, mm-hmm. right? And then safety that became more, more prominent as I started to study other different countries. So I, I would say that it is, it has been a very impactful journey as I studied that. Yeah, that would be my answer. Hmm. And what are some typical career paths for your major? I know you went to um, the MBA, MBA program at Stanford, but where did most of your classmates end up? Yeah, um, I think if you look at China, right, a lot of them, I think when we graduated, you know, in like 2019, it was when the internet industry um, is still rather hot, right? Uh-huh. So um, that landing spot is still popular amongst many grads. So in my class as well, a lot of people went to the popular internet countries that you see in China. So places like Tencent, NetEase, ByteDance, and so on. I'm sure folks are familiar with, with such names. But another path would also be to pursue the diplomatic route because after all, we studied international political economy, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of folks were considering to work for the government and maybe more specifically for the foreign ministry. So I think we see that as well. At the same time, in China, there is a push for graduates from all these top schools to be closer to the ground, right? Mm-hmm. We call it 回到基层, right? So um, with the push, actually, um, I've also been seeing my classmates kind of go back to some of the more underdeveloped parts of China mm-hmm. to either be part of that very grounded local politics or rather kind of governance as well as to just be teachers in those areas. So I, I would say it's, it's pretty diverse, but a large chunk of it revolves around, number one, the internet industry, or number mm-hmm. two, just the public service of kind of contributing back to the gov- governance of your country. So... What brought you to Stanford? <laughs> um, yeah, this is also a pretty long story. So as of now, I have been in the creative arts for about 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. And so you can see that the journey started way before, for me, it started way before high school, started way before undergrad, and has continued all the way to now. So mm-hmm. I think compared to my peers, I've started I'm dabbling in a career way earlier. I also started working way way earlier than some of my peers um, when I was in college. And so when I graduated college, I genuinely felt that I wanted to, I still needed certain skill sets, 
right? Mm-hmm. And I realized that after being involved in creative arts for so long, either as you know a, photog- a, a photographer with NetGeo or in other capacities, I realized that I really needed more professional knowledge in general management and business mm-hmm. in order to help scale up the creative arts. So one thing that's big in creative arts is, you know, you always think about like the output, definitely. But another one is just how sustainable is the arts, right? How um, financially viable are they? And many a times the artist isn't very acquainted with the business side of things, mm-hmm. right? But the way I see it is if you really want to help scale up creative arts, right? Make um, long-term arts projects, be it in gaming, or movies, in animations, or in just in public art, different forms, you really need to have some kind of business mindset. You need to know like, oh, what is the value I can provide for my sponsors, for example? How should I calculate my overhead costs and things like that? And so for me, going to Stanford GSB to do my MBA was a way to equip myself with skills to better manage the creative arts from both sides. Number one, from the creative and number two, from the business. And so the analogy I like to use for this is for folks to scale up the creative arts, you need to have two arrows in your quiver, right? So you think of yourself as an archer. Mm -hmm. Um, You need to have a creative arrow. You also need to have a business arrow. And when I thought about going to Stanford GSB at that point in time, when I was applying, I only had the creative arrow. And so going to Stanford was the way for me to pick up those business chops so I can be more acquainted on the business side as well. So mm-hmm. even going forward, I think now if I look at my current role, a lot of what I do is like 60% creative, 40% business in a way, or sometimes like 60% business, 40% creative. And so mm-hmm. I think I've really liked working at the intersection of the two. And there was a new round of culture shocks, right? When you first came to Stanford. Yeah. Um, I guess the way I'll frame this is in a concept called low context and and high context, right? So Mm -hmm. if you know low context cultures, so low low context cultures may refer to places like, you know, the US or some of the um, European countries, for example. Low context cultures means people rely on direct communication and Mm -hmm. the use of concrete language to get a point across, right? So um, information in a message would be more defined, more spelled out. Whereas if you had to compare it to high context cultures, such as China or the other Asian countries, including Singapore, we rely on more indirect, Mm nonverbal communication, right? And, you know, people always say that for example, Asian cultures are built on a confusion notion of social harmony, right? If you think about a lot of Chinese phrases, it's always like, you know, qi, right? Mm-hmm. things like that. And so I think harmony is something that is, is always being emphasized. And there's harmony and there's, there's also hierarchy in, in, Asian, in Asian cultures. So many a times, I think the culture shock that I see was just the stark difference in one culture being a bit more reserved, a bit more focus on the social harmony whereas mm-hmm. another one in, in the US was more much more direct but I think both of them are unique in, in their own ways and I've actually been able to just appreciate those differences I, I would say though now that I work in 
so-called like a global company, what I've realized is that sometimes when you have meetings with like Asian counterparts, mm-hmm. it may be harder for you to get feedback or all responses. Like, like you present this thing about a certain game or this certain plan. Mm-hmm. And sometimes what you get is just silence. Whereas for my counterparts in the US, feedback or just a good or bad would be um, much more forthcoming. Right, mm. So I, I would say it has been an extension from just the culture shock all the way to the corporate workplace as well. Mm-hmm. And also, I assume you're among the youngest of all your classmates because you uh, went into this MBA program right after undergrad. Well, other classmates in my already work in the industry for many years. So most of them might be like older than you. So... Um, yeah, would that make you like a little bit less confident? I think this is a very interesting question and one that I grappled with, right? Because clearly, when you apply out of college, if you think about it, the odds of making it through the application isn't very high, right? Mm-hmm. Just because there isn't a, a lot of like precedence for you to see, right? You kind of like look to your seniors and say, oh, who has gotten to an MBA program before, right? Mm-hmm. I think that challenge is, is, is always there. So I think for me, one thing I recognized was number one, um, they clearly evaluate many applicants in, in a single year or in, in multiple cycles and mm-hmm. they know who they're looking at. And sometimes they may see value that I don't. That's number one. Number two, I think I also have to recognize value in, in myself, right? Mm-hmm. I, While you may think I'm young, I think I'm not that young given that Number one, I started working earlier than some of my counterparts. Mm-hmm. And number two, like things like started working in junior high school, for example, um, in startups and things like that. So one thing is like starting to work earlier. And number two is I, I was also able to spend two years in the military in a mm-hmm. leadership position. And I think that different experience and amount of kind of stress that you go through in, in that military experience also gives you additional kudos, right? Mm. So... In a way, I actually don't see myself as lacking experiences compared to my classmates. I think I see myself as being able to bring different perspectives. Like for example, there was a case, I remember we were doing this accounting case um, in class, was it 2020? Um, about Kodak. So Kodak, mm-hmm. like the, the old um, film company, the film photography company. Mm-hmm. And I remember like, because no one else was from the so-called creative arts or familiar with the medium of photography, I was able to speak much more and give flavor to the business case that we were working on just because I had that creative arts background. And so I think the gist to the business school experience was not to think that, you know, oh, um, do I have like less experiences than others, but rather to, re- to realize what your unique slice of contribution is and what I enjoyed at Stanford was everyone was so humble but yet knowledgeable about their unique slice and in some classes like people will be quiet and they will learn and just absorb like a sponge and in some classes where they were the subject matter experts and maybe in this case for me it would be like the Kodak case that I spoke about they just Mm -hmm. speak out so much and have that experience and so I think it's a great process of just learning from your classmates one last thing I'll add here is I think as a relatively younger person, well, mm-hmm. not that young, it's, it's also nice to 
just listen to your older classmates about life. And I think having those conversations, because many of them have families and, and have kids, have shaped the way I think about my work priorities. Just listening to how like someone, um, for example, have regrets after you know, um, working for 20 years, listening to those regrets and how mm-hmm. they process it. Just hearing these stories, I think, have been impactful in the way that I make choices as well. Yeah. Yeah, I know a big bonus of uh, MBA program is this alumni network. So were, like, were you very connected with all your classmates after you graduate and during this pandemic thing? I think yes and no. I think the <laughs> alumni network is, is a little bit too big mm. <laughs> um, for me to co- constantly being connected. But what I would say is that the alum network has truly been great. I remember when um, I was applying for Activision Blizzard, for example, just having alums in a company um, for me to speak to it and understand the company culture was very helpful. Mm-hmm. And one thing that happened at, at Stanford was we actually have kind of like group, small group sessions between alums and, and current students. So I think back when I was at Stanford, I got paired with my so-called a mentor that mm-hmm. was this alum who is now working at AT&T in a very senior leadership, leadership position. And we would have like monthly check-ins and, and just chat. And what started at the start of my MBA is still happening now. So we, are st- we have been checking in every single month since the start of my MBA. So I think the alums are very supportive. And to be frank, I think they have provided me a lot of support when I had questions about my own career as well. And in many ways, I try to um, kind of pay it forward if I can. Yeah, but to, to just say in a very succinct manner, I, I think the alum network has been very helpful, but a bit too big for me to stay in contact all the time. But we do have small groups to connect when we can. So after the MBA program, you joined Activision Blizzard. Yeah, I feel gaming might be like a great intersection of creativity, innovation, and also business. Yeah, but I'm just wondering whether you have like a strong preference for industry, like why you choose gaming over other creative professions. Yeah, I think, I think for me, Gaming is interesting because as we know, gaming has become very big over the past few years, right? Mm-hmm. And I've seen it gaining more gravitas in people's life, meaning that, especially over the pandemic, you see how gaming has become such a good escape for people, right? As they were locked up in, in their homes, it became a great, great way for them to connect. It became a great way for them to escape. It became a great way for them to vent their emotions and, and their frustrations. And so as we see gaming move into this integral part of everyone's life, you know, we have like three, three plus billion gamers at this point in time across the whole planet or even going to 4 billion as we speak. I would say that it's just interesting to be in this industry because you see digital lives in gaming take on a much higher weight in people's priorities going forward. And I say that because, um, I still play one of our games. Uh, it's called the World of Warcraft very mm-hmm. frequently. 
And I think just to see how folks integrate that into their real lives and to balance to kind of change the way I saw gaming, right? So in many ways, I think gaming is a second identity or even a second life for, for many people because I, I manage com- communities and guilds on the Warcraft game. Mm-hmm. What I would say is I've seen how gaming can be a force of good in that I have people who may be suffering from some you know, mental conditions or mm-hmm. maybe having a very bad day or just other you know, chronic or terminal illnesses just be able to find so much joy and relief from a game itself. And when I look to other mediums, like you mentioned, other mediums in the creative arts, like movies, for example, drama series, for example, or music, I have no doubt that they bring a lot of value. But in terms of providing that sustainable community, that social experience for people to come together and have fun every single day, I still think gaming is the answer. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so when we chatted earlier, you also mentioned this dark side of gaming. Like sometimes the gamers or even the gaming community can be abusive and toxic. Yeah, so is that something you encounter a lot in your work? And yeah, just where did this thing like appear on your radar and how you're gonna stand up to it? Yeah, great point. I think speak about this from two aspects. Number one, toxic evolves into cheating, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have toxic behaviors and that moves into cheating. Um, and to be frank, having cheaters in game is usually the number one driver for people to not play your game. The number one driver. And so I think the way that it's hard for me as a person to address this, right? Because as one person, it's tough. But I think what we have been able to see openly at the company level is we've started to impl- implement anti-cheat systems. So for me, I work pretty closely with the Call of Duty franchise. And one thing we did was to have this system called Ricochet that enabled us to start dealing with the cheaters that we see in game. So that is one aspect, right? That is one form of toxic behavior. People getting so competitive and they, they start using cheats and things like that. So that's one area. Another area would just be in terms of like toxic behavior, toxic language, both in-game as well as in other channels like Discord, for example. I would say that there's still a lot of work for us to do in, in this realm. While number one, we should rely on gamers to like play in good faith and be nice and things like that, sometimes like language comes across in, in different ways. I mean, you, you may be outright toxic, you may be having a bad day, or you may be just you know, more aggressive than usual because of the content you're playing is very competitive um, and things like that. So I would say there's still a lot of work for us to do. But I think one thing we can do, at least at a company level, is to strengthen the reporting mechanisms, mm-hmm. right? And how fast we get people, not machines, to respond, right? And I can't speak to this because I'm not part of the product team, but this is just from myself as a community leader's point of view. If you're playing like World of Warcraft, for example, and you're in there, someone has been very toxic to you, saying very nasty stuff, slurs, insults, and things like that, can we have you know, fast reporting mechanisms 
for people to flag that conversation and for a game master, like a GM in game to respond to that as soon as possible, right? I think we do need to have such mechanisms in place. Mm. And when I speak about this, this also brings in the business side that I spoke about because if you think about this, right, you know, hiring more people, not systems, right, requires an upfront cost, right? There's a cost to maintaining a team of support agents, right? So mm. that is also where I, I would say the kind of the business element also flows in, in terms of, you know, we want to make a responsive support available for all players, but you do have to consider the cost involved as well. And to end off this part, what I would say is, as a community leader, and in, in WoW, for example, I'm a guild leader, that's number one, and I'm also a community leader that manages with my peers about a 35,000 people community. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a pretty big chance. I think as a player and, and as a leader, it's, the honest is also on me and, and my peers to help create events, help create an atmosphere that people feel that it's nice and warm and friendly and can come together to enjoy. Because mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, for example, if you came into the game and on your first day, you were unlucky, you met toxic players, you may think that that is the, the language and the mode that you should default to, right? You just get immersed in the environment. But what I'm saying is that if I, for myself, what I can do is provide events, provide avenues for you to learn and play with me in a nice and warm way, then that helps to structure the way you think and act as well, right? So I think instead of just looking to like the business or like to corporate or to the product for solutions, I think us ourselves, we have to contribute to that solution. And for me, the way I do it is every single weekend, and this has been going on for like the past few months and years, is to host events where players can come together and experience content. Mm-hmm. And then we will use like the Discord to chat and I will introduce or even teach them when the content gets harder. So I think that is the individual element that I like to stress as well. Yeah, I could say like creating a safer place for players is a big part of your job. And are there any other aspect of your work as a program manager? Yeah, um, just to speak specifically to the product manager role that I was involved in earlier this year at Call of Duty, to the extent that, that I can share, I think a lot of it is also to explore the frontiers of marketing mm-hmm. when it comes to our go-to-market plan. So as, as you know, every product would have a go-to-market plan, right? Like how do you plan to um, message this product to um, the different cohorts of people that you have, right? So if, for example, if I'm working on a new phone for, for Google or Apple, Right? Mm-hmm. If I was working for those companies, there's usually a plan to message this, this product to different audiences. And same applies for Activision Blizzard. I think what we're always trying to do is be able to help push the product in meaningful messages to our different audience segments out there. And for me, I think one thing that I've been trying to work on is to stay on the cultural conversation. And this is just my personal opinion, doesn't represent the team, but my personal opinion is Mm -hmm. that in recent years, you see certain games be able to stay on that cultural conversation more often than us. And like, they would have, you know, like 
virtual concerts, for example, or other new and fun experiences that is just more familiar with the younger crowd that we see today. Whereas for Call of Duty, because it has been a franchise that's been going on for many years, almost two decades now, I think sometimes we need to use new ways of marketing to bring it to life and in order to push the frontier of that. So that is one thing that I'm focused on. Number two, I think for me, I'm also closely associated with the APAC region, right? Mm-hmm. Asia Pacific, because clearly I'm, I spend a lot of time in Singapore and then in China as well. And so for me, it's a lot of what I do is also trying to make sure that our regional teams have a voice at, at headquarters. Because as you know, in, in like a big company, there are a lot of different voices that's going, that's going around. And one priority of mine is to always make sure that the regional voices, their concerns, their priorities also get escalated in a way that is visible by our, by our global teams. Yeah, so we already uh, mentioned this a couple of times in our conversation. So I know you are a photographer since you were in high school. So how did you get started on that journey? Oh, wow. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, This is a pretty long story, but um, I guess to say it is, I think in my family, as I was growing up, we've always had a compact camera with us, you know, right? It's a Mm -hmm. small Canon compact camera um, that I would have. But actually growing up, I was never a huge fan of photography or even the act of trying to photograph something. I think though, looking back, that was a turning point for me. And that turning point was a particular event that happened around the age of 14 for me. When Panasonic, the um, Japanese company, came to my school in Singapore to organize a one-day photography workshop. In that workshop, what happened was we were able to, we were given the chance to try out some of their cameras. And then when we tried out those cameras, they said, you know, as part of the workshop, they told us to go around the surrounding areas of my school to take more photographs. And so I did. And Panasonic told us that we could select a few good photographs and submit them for a photographic competition. And so I'm like, oh yeah, I took a few photographs. Um, I'm not sure what looks good, but I chose a few. And not having any expectations, I submitted my photographs at the end of the day for for competition. Mm-hmm. A few months or the a few months later, I was notified that I, w- I won a prize. Um, oh. And the story could have stopped here, but it went on. What happened was at that point in time, I was actually the president of our school's IT club. Um, so this is where like a lot of nerds were at. <laughs> and then um, I was also vice president of the AVA club. AVA club was the club that managed the sound systems and the lighting systems, right? So for example, like whenever like the, pres- the principal needed to talk, we would like turn on the mics, like where, all, where there are performances, we would like do the lighting system for the school. So I was the president of the IT club and vice president of the AVA club, this too. And what happened was my teachers there caught word of this award. So they were like, oh, Pegnan, you won something. I'm like, yeah, I think it's like beginner's luck. And what happened was they actually nudged me on to take more photographs at school events. And what happened was at that point in time, 
we didn't have a professional camera in our school. Mm-hmm. But my two teachers, they bought a personal DSLR. So it was their own. And they brought it to school for me to use. Yeah, so if like my teachers, the two of them are listening to this podcast, I think their names are Mr. Ku and Mr. Pei. Thank you for lending me that camera because <laughs> in that point in time, they saw something in me that I didn't. Mm. And I think I'm, I would always be very grateful for that. Um, they would frequently tell me that, I remember they would frequently tell me this phrase that say, you have the eye. I would always tell them like, what eye? And they would say that it's an eye for photography. It's a distinct and different way of looking at the world we live in. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're so young, you clearly don't know what you're good at, right? Because you're like, I'm a pretty average person, pretty average grades. Like, you don't know what you're good at. Just hearing so much faith and recognition and motivation from two teachers and the people around me at that point in time really nudged me on to just take more photographs and eventually just win all those international and national photography competitions, right? So I would say this is how I started. And from that point on, the rest is history. Yeah, I, I know you took a lot of good photographs, but the thing I was struck by is throughout your career as a photographer, you also mentor many people. So I would say you also see a lot of things they didn't. And also for many of them, photographer or uh, photography can even be a form of therapy, right? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think, you know, with this tension, I think we are going towards like the Project Dreamcatchers. And so for those who don't know, um, Project Dreamcatchers Dream is a long-term arts mentorship pro- project that really explores the triumphs and tribulations of youth with chronic illnesses. And though for those who are unfamiliar with this term, chronic illnesses are long-term health conditions that may or may not have a cure in, in sight, right? Mm-hmm. And this project started almost actually almost 10 years ago, now that I think about it, when I was serving in the military. And I remember like when I had a rest day from the military, we would work on this as a collaboration with a hospital called the National University Hospital in Singapore. And this is where we get to use the, you know, tools like photography um, as a healing tool to work with the patients. And to, to further explain this, you know, like how does photography help them with art, art therapy? I always come back to this phrase because, you know, they say you always close one eye when you take a photograph, right? Like imagine if you're using a professional photograph. I'm sure like Kasin, you remember like if you would close one eye, right? And would, you would look through that viewfinder. Mm-hmm. And the phrase that always comes back to me is when one eye of the photographer looks wide open into the world through mm-hmm. the viewfinder, the other, the closed eye looks into his soul. So I think when you take on photography, you're not just going to any place and just taking photograph. I think what you photograph, how you photograph, and why you photograph speaks volumes about you. And for the patients that I was working with at the hospital, photography is both an introspective process 
and a means of proving themselves right. Here, in terms of proving themselves right, I'll share two stories. The first story is when we first started this project. I had the opportunity to meet twins,、mm. and the twins are Lean and Joyce, and they both suffered from cerebral palsy.、Mm. So cerebral palsy is a disorder that affects a person's ability to move and maintain balance and posture. So one example is their hands would tremble as they held up the camera, and as any normal person, you would think that having stable hands is key to a good photograph. Right, you need to、mm-hmm. hold your hold your camera safe in a stable way to take a good photograph.、Mm-hmm. So for Lean and Joyce, the twins that I mentioned, there is a tremendous sense of victory when they are able to calm and stabilize themselves, stabilize their hands and body amid all the trembles to take a photograph of something that has meaning to them. So, like for example, in the photographs that they take, indeed, like perhaps eight eight out of ten. Would have some kind of shake or blur to them,、mm-hmm. but in the one or two of the day that we take that are clear, nice, and sharp, that is a way for themselves to prove to themselves that that they've overcome some kind of challenge, right? So I would say that is one story that kind of illustrates this idea of a therapy for patients to also exceed their boundaries. The last and second story that I'll share. Is I also had the opportunity to meet this patient called Sherry, and、mm-hmm. she suffers from a cornea condition. Right, cornea is part of the eye, and so on a good day, Sherry had five percent of her vision. It went to as low as one or two percent on a bad day, and what this means is that on most day, the best she could see were blurry blobs of color. Again, as any normal person, you would think that being able to see clearly. Is pertinent to take any photograph, right? If you can't see clearly, how can you know what you're taking? But for Sherry, it means so much more. She shared with me that because of her vision that was being affected, photography is her means of trying to see the world, trying to freeze certain moments, so she can revisit those photographs on good and bad days. And I hope you see with these two stories that. They really represent and have so much more meaning to the patients than just taking a nice sharp photograph. And actually, this experience has greatly shaped the way I view the creative arts, and really helped to formulate the gravity of the work that I do going forward. Hey, thank you for listening. If you like our episodes, subscribe to Dedicated on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to follow us on socials, you can find us at Dedicated FM on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to contact us, our email is dedicatedfm two zero two two at gmail dot com. I hope you enjoy.